It's common in our day for church attenders to seek comfort and to seek support. It's a lot less common for church attenders to seek holiness. It's common to find church attenders who go to church in order that they might find some way to improve their lives, some way, some new idea to hear and to understand. It's less common to find churchgoers who seek the convicting rebuke of the Holy Spirit. I come to church to seek that. I desire that. It's common for church attenders to seek friends and to seek programs, for instance, but less common for church attenders to seek spiritual accountability and how can we selflessly serve the cause of Christ? In fact, churches where members are pursuing holiness, where they are welcoming the conviction of the Holy Spirit, where they are giving themselves sacrificially to the advance of Christ's cause, these churches actually can prove intimidating. As intimidating as they are welcoming. There's an unsaved husband who attends our church on rare occasion with his believing wife. But we found that as the years have passed, that he's coming less and less. And he has said that the reason that he's there, he doesn't mind being at the church, the people are very friendly, but he says it's intimidating. He said, he, his words are, those people are too godly for me. Well, let me assure you, they are not. <laughs> We're not as godly as he thinks we are godly, certainly. But what does he sense? He senses that we are anxious to face our sins, that we seek the conviction of the Spirit of God, that we want to change, we want to face ourselves, and he senses that we want to grow in holiness, that we mean we intend to follow Jesus Christ. He does not intend to do so right now, and so it's hard for him to be there. He finds it very uncomfortable. I suppose to some degree, a faith community ought to be uncomfortable for someone who is living for self and for sin, right? Why would they find that a comfortable setting? Now, many churches, what I've said, would very much disagree at this point. And they'd step forward and they say, it is your job as a church to make people feel good about themselves, to be comfortable, to take away everything you can that would make them feel intimidated. How evil is that? The church should be welcoming and encouraging. And of course, on some level, it certainly should be. But what happens often in such churches is that they soften the call of Christ. What did Jesus say? You want to follow me, take up your cross. You didn't take up a cross to take a picnic. You took up a cross and you weren't coming back. But that message is softened so that we don't offend in many churches. There are people who come seeking entertainment and seeking positive feelings and people who say then we need to calibrate the church in order to accommodate that so that people are not turned away. Well, the New Testament vision of a faithful local church is our consideration today as we come here to Acts chapter 5. The risen Christ, let us understand from the book of Acts at this point, is saving a people for his name. He unites them to a local church which forms a spiritual family in which Christ's transformational, sanctifying agenda is at work in the lives of 
believers. He does not put us in a church and say, I want you to just be happy. I want you to find a comfortable community. I want you to just get along. He puts us in a church to change us. He's placed you in this church to transform you, to work you over spiritually, that you would grow into the likeness of Christ. And this sanctifying growth and holiness involves, then, the exposure of sin. Who finds that comfortable? But it involves the exposure of sin. It involves correction. It involves setting straight sinful thinking and addressing and correcting sinful patterns of living. This thesis fairly bursts from the pages of Acts chapter 5. Let me begin first with chapter 4, verse 32, just to catch the context. The full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. I'm at Acts 5, or 4, verse 32. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him, and he brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. We cannot get into the very unique situation that is taking place here in the early church, but the practice is fairly clear to us. Motivated by loving sacrifice of Jesus who became poor for our sakes, Barnabas sold a field and gave 100% of the proceeds to the church so that people could live off of this money in that unique setting. This was a genuine, selfless, joyful act of mercy on the part of a faithful man. And undoubtedly, this infant church was energized by this grace. There were others doing the same thing. We don't know their names. We don't know to what degree. We don't know how much was given. But clearly, money is being turned over to allow this church to be here and to grow and to thrive. And Barnabas was at the heart of this. Let me ask you, do you think people knew? Yeah, they knew. They knew what he had done and they respected what he had done to take this money and say, this is for you, this is for those of you who don't have enough to live on. With that backdrop, we find, I'm just going to break this down into two characteristics of a faithful local church that emerge out of what takes place after Barnabas' gift. Two characteristics of a faithful local church. The first is that a faithful local church upholds the moral purity of its members. It works together to uphold the moral purity, the holiness of its members. First, we consider the case of Ananias in the first six verses of chapter 5. Follow there as I read verse 1. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Only his wife knowing means that they are in a plot here 
And what they're doing, they're working together and they're telling no one else. It's only his wife that understands. So we'll consider Ananias' motivations a bit later, but the connection to Barnabas' gift is unmistakable. Ananias wanted the esteem of the church that Barnabas enjoyed, but he was unwilling to make the same sacrifice. Truly, Ananias gave only the amount that he thought was necessary to convince people this was the full sale price. If it had taken a dollar less, he'd have given a dollar less. But that's what he thought, that's where he was at, that's what he did. So picture it. The apostles are assembled here. Ananias approaches with a face plastered, I'm sure, with uh, false piety. And I can't imagine his heart wasn't beating a little faster than normal, if not half pounding out of his chest. He's a little worried about it, undoubtedly, and he plops down the money bag at their feet. Claims that the gift is the full amount of the sale price. In some way, he indicates this. Verse 3, but Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? We don't know how Peter discerned this, whether a word of prophecy or just a lot of detail that we don't have. But much more egregiously than lying to Peter and the other apostles, he's lied to the Holy Spirit. You have presented yourself a certain way, and it's a lie. Why? Why have you done this? Satan schemes here to introduce hypocrisy and greed and lying into the life of the church. This is what he wants to see happen. And Ananias has signed up for the project. He's like, I'm with this. I'm, I'm, I'm participating in this evil. Now we ask the question here, was it evil for Ananias to keep back some of the money of the sale? That question is answered very clearly in verse 4. It was not wrong. Peter says, while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Clearly the answer is, of course. Ananias was not obligated to sell his land. He was not obligated, having sold it, to give 100% of the proceeds. The money was his to keep. The money was his to give away. That's what Peter is saying. The only problem here is that Ananias presented himself as giving away 100% of the proceeds. He wanted an esteem from the church like he could purchase it while keeping some of the money for himself. So he wanted them to think what was, what was true about him, knowing that it was not true. This is the problem. And what happens next is utterly shocking. Verse 4, Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. The Greek word that Luke uses to describe Ananias' death is always found in the New Testament in context of judgment. And here, a severe judgment. God takes him out. He strikes Ananias down, and the young men from the assembly likely wrap him in a shroud and carry out his body and bury him, and I'm certain there wasn't a whole lot of ceremony to it. 
just like that, he's gone. The case of Sapphira is taken up at verse 7. Secondly, after an interval of about three hours, his wife came in not knowing what had happened. So she must have grown worried why Ananias isn't showing up. She doesn't know her husband's in the earth, dead. But she walks into the same scene, hurrying off, probably thinking, well, I've got to figure out what's going on with my husband here. And Peter said to her as she comes in, verse 8, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. So he gives the price that's not 100%, but whatever percent it was that Sapphira had said to them, is that the sale price? So she knows the lie. She's fully aware, and she says yes for so much. She doesn't even ask, where's my husband? What's going on? But she follows his lie in the scheme that they had together. Yes for that much. Now, we might ask, isn't this entra entrapment? I always say, it's the apostles don't do this at home. Uh, it's not a good idea, you know. But I don't think it's entrapment. I mean, if you want to call it entrapment, what does she need to do? All she needs to do is tell the truth. That's it. I, I don't know if I'd put it as entrapment, like there's some sort of evil going on here in the part of Peter. Peter's just asking her, honestly, is this the full sale price of the land? She must just speak the truth. She does not. Verse 9, Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together, you and your husband, to test the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. What happens when we lie? When we lie, we assume God will extend mercy to us. God will overlook our lie and that everything's going to work out in the end. Man, I don't think we sit down and consciously work this out. But we, that is what we're doing. When we lie, we assume we're going to do better this way. And we trust that God's going to overlook it. Whether conscious or not, this is the game of risk that Ananias and Sapphira played. And at that moment, the patter of feet is heard outside the door, and we see that immediately she falls down, verse 10, at, at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Here's the reaction, verse 11. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Notice that the news of Ananias and Sapphira's sin reached the members of the church and how they respond. Fear. It also reached the community. And how did the community respond? Fear. It struck everybody essentially the same way. Believers and unbelievers were pointedly aware of something in this moment. What was it? The risen Christ is working in this church. He is aware of the truth of individuals' lives, and he has brought this judgment upon this couple. Believers and unbelievers realizing that the risen Christ is purifying his church, and that's a little frightening. God demonstrated in a dramatic way that his church must uphold the purity of its members. 
We'll return to that thought in a few moments, but let's stop here just to reflect. As some people look at this narrative, they say, this isn't the Bible. This isn't God's truth. This is just early church people that were trying to explain why some Christians had died before Jesus returned. And so they just invented this story to say, well, here's why these people died. And they weren't, I mean, I, I like to say to these critics, you certainly don't think these writers are very smart people because they're telling these stories about how people die and maybe some other people are going to die. And then you're just going to have to tell more and more stories to, to work this out. What they're missing, these critics of the text, what they're missing, of course, is they don't understand the holiness of God. They don't understand that Christ is truly risen and reigning in his church. And so they have to come up with some story to say this didn't really happen. What they're also missing is the theological connectedness of this event with all of God's workings with his people. Do you remember in the conquest, the first person that that disobeyed God's commands concerning the ban, the ban being that as you come into this conquest, I have devoted these people to utter judgment. You remember the first person that broke that law of God was Achan. Remember what happened to him? He was judged by God in death immediately. Now you ask the question, was he the last one to violate God's will in the conquest? No. Did every one of them die? No. But at the beginning of that conquest, God is saying, my people will be a pure people, and I'm going to send the message sternly. And Achan dies. Remember the priesthood. As God establishes the priesthood in Leviticus chapter 10, Nadab and Abihu offer strange fire, whatever that means. They are outside of the will and the purpose of God. And what happens? They're struck dead. You know the Old Testament well enough to know, were they the last priests that ever disobeyed God? Clearly not. Did all of them, were all of them struck dead immediately? No. But at the beginning of the priesthood, God says, my people will be a holy people. And so we have here in parallel at the start of the infant church as it first deals with entrenched sin, God stands forward again and we could almost predict this. This is how God works. This is how he's worked in the past. This is how he's going to work here. And this initial sin, I'm going to say that no one was, had any sin before this, but in this decided, entrenched, unrepentant, willful decision to introduce hypocrisy and falsehood into the church, God says, no. My people will be a holy people. And he sends a clear message that everybody catches in the church and outside the church. As somebody has said, praise God this isn't how church discipline works today or we'd have to have a morgue inside every church. That's, but you see, as God works at the start of these movements of salvation history, this makes perfect sense. No, this is not how we continue to exercise church discipline, thank God. We go to what? We would go now to Matthew 18. 
We would now go to the passage we read here earlier, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. We would go to Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, that speaks of confronting sin and then restoring someone by the mercies and the grace of God. God's not being unmerciful here. This isn't some kind of concocted story that makes no sense. It makes perfect sense within the way that God works with his people to say they will be pure. Now, we aren't. And we fail and we sin, but God wants his church to be comprised of faithful people. Take a little break, take off onto another side angle here, and let's talk about lying for a moment. As we think of Ananias and Sapphira's sin, what was wrong with what they did? First, very obviously, they lied. They stated as real what was unreal as true what was false. They broke fellowship with Christ, the head of the church, who is truth personified. So Ananias and Sapphira determined that they could prosper more by lying than by following the example of Christ. That's what we do when we lie. And you lie. I lie. We may, through growth, be at the place where our lies are very subtle, They're not even detected by others, but we misrepresent the truth in our walk with God. We need to confess that as sin. We need to repent. We need to recognize it and where necessary, make it right with others. But this is in us. We think by misrepresenting the truth, we're going to get further along. And that's what they thought. And God said, no, it will not be this way in my church. But I think going deeper than just the lie is that they yielded to idolatry. Lying always serves a deeper desire in our hearts. Ananias and Sapphira, I don't think they woke up that morning and said, let's see, where can we lie? Let's find a place where we can lie somewhere, like like an alcoholic looking for a drink or something like that. That's not where they're at. Lying was a tool to secure the kind of esteem and praise that Barnabas had while at the same time stoking their lust for money. We can lie and get this from the church and get this in our greed. We can have both and it'll work better than if we just told the truth. So pride and greed are are ruling their hearts and leading them from the Savior who became poor that through his poverty we might become rich. That Jesus, the Jesus who created the universe, the Jesus who came in flesh, the Jesus who lived a righteous life without sin, the Jesus who died and was buried and rose again and ascended and who is reigning now as the judge of the living and the dead, that Jesus was a million miles away from their thoughts. He wasn't even there. They were manipulating the circumstances down here with their heads down, never seeing the risen Christ, not thinking that he's seeing everything. And they bank on this risk that he'll just look the other way. God never looks the other way. He loves us too much. He will bring us to account for our sin. And he brought them to account in a way at the start of this church that said, this cannot continue. Holding on to the God of money, they impoverished their souls and bankrupted their integrity. Holding on to the God of pride, they were humiliated 
God uses Peter then to expose their sin, and then God judges them severely, Christ using the church as an agent to purify it from these people. Now again, in our setting, it's not death in judgment, judgment by death that God brings upon us. But it is rather the church yet working together to seek the purity of its members. And where a church is interested in the purity of its members, there's going to be people that are fearful, that are turned off, that are intimidated by that. But that's the calling of the church. So we broker not in death, but we broker in church discipline, in repentance, in confession, in forgiveness, in restoration, that we would help one another grow in purity and holiness as a church. This is the agenda of Jesus' church. And frankly, it's not the agenda of every local church. So we need to really consider, are we calibrating our church to what Jesus desires? And I would ask you, particularly those who are members of this church are soon to identify with it. Do you want to be part of a local church which always makes you feel good because no one ever challenges you spiritually? Or do you want to be part of a church that is very anxious about your purity? Now it strikes many in a Western world that, well, I don't want people poking their nose in my business. It's not a call to be nosy. It's a call to love. And where someone loves you, sticking their nose in your business when you're walking away from God is a loving way to guide you back. Now there's a wrong way to do it, but there's a right way to do it. Do you want to be part? Does this church, is it willing to take forward that effort to become the kind of church that is seeking to purify one another? It's, a, it's not an easy answer. I mean, it's, it's, it's a challenge to all of us. We should desire the holiness of our own hearts in assembly, and we should desire the holiness of our brothers and sisters and work to see the church purified. This leads to the second characteristic, so the characteristic of a faithful local church, the first being uh, to uphold the moral purity of our members. The second, a faithful local church repulses and attracts unbelievers. I'm not, I didn't lose my way there. I know that sounds like it's self-contradictory, but I, I don't think it is. I, they, it, a faithful local church repulses and attracts unbelievers. Verse 12, now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. Well, note here the magnetism of a vibrant church as God works to purify his people. Uh, verse 13, None of the rest, however, dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. So against the explicit command of the Jewish authorities to never speak in Jesus' name again, the church continued to gather on the east side of the temple complex under that roof and the columns of Solomon's portico. They're gathering there, but many Jews, knowing that they're gathered there, seeing them gathered under that portico, say, I don't want nothing to do with those people. They were staying away. They were repulsed. And why are they repulsed? Did they know what the authorities had said? You're not to speak in Jesus' name anymore? Very likely. But contextually, why? 
Why are they afraid to join these people contextually? Notice verse 5. Great fear came upon all who heard of it. They heard of Ananias and Sapphira. Great fear came on them. Notice verse 11. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. So they probably did know that the authorities were saying you can't speak in Jesus' name anymore, but the context points in verses 5 and 11 to the fact that they heard what happened to Ananias and Sapphira. That's that church over there where those two people dropped dead. I'm not going in there. I am not walking into that assembly. Again, verse 13, the rest dared not join them. Verse 14, and more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. Now, which one is it? It sounds contradictory, doesn't it? People say, I'm not going in there. But unbelievers continue to be led to Christ. And that is, of course, primarily because those believers under Solomon's portico are going out into the temple complex and out into Jerusalem and back to their homes and winning their neighbors and contacts and family to Christ. But both are going on at the same time. So the apostolic miracles prove that the risen Christ is reigning over his church, and the execution of Ananias and Sapphira prove that Jesus is purifying his church. Some are intimidated by that. Others see the light of it and are coming to Christ as Savior. So the church is repulsing people while it is leading people to Jesus. Amazing connection. A vibrant, healthy, God-exalting local church in which Jesus is purifying his people, is going to scare a few people away. Now as we think of that as a church here, I want to encourage us to extend warm welcome to those who visit. When there are unbelievers that come into our assembly, when there are sinful people that come into our assemblies, they should know you are welcome here. We desire you to be here. We want you to come in among us. We want to encourage them to continue watching our lives and hearing what we speak of and how we live together. Remember that faithful churches' pursuit of holiness is not going to be attractive to everyone. It's going to be intimidating. That's not all bad. That's not all bad. Again, the church growth theory of our day is remove everything from the church that could possibly offend someone or prove intimidating. The early church did not see it that way, and the early church did not experience it that way. They saw the right kind of growth, and it was not by compromising the message. It was by being filled with joy and proclaiming Christ crucified and risen and pursuing healthy repulsion. Having said that, there was also then, of course, healthy attraction. As more coming to know Christ as Savior, verse 14, and continuing in verse 15, as both men and women are multiplying as new believers, so, verse 15, that they even carried out the sick into the streets, and they laid them on cots and mats that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. So many were intimidated, but the sick particularly could not resist the opportunity to be healed. 
And people from all around are descending upon the apostles and many are believing and all are being healed who come. Oh, this is one of those places in the text of the New Testament, the life of the early church, where we see nothing of the notion that only those who had robust faith in Christ were healed. They're just healed. And we certainly see nothing of the notion that only those who contributed money were healed. This is something other than the shows that go on in our day. The the mere shadow of the apostles was sufficient to heal anyone who came, and there was no argument that they'd been healed even from the critics of Christ, even from those who sought to destroy the church, these people have been healed of lifelong illnesses, some of them. So the same, this is beauty, isn't it? The same Lord who struck down Ananias and Sapphira with death is healing sick people. He's rescuing them. He is risen. He is reigning. He is working through these apostles in a unique way. So many stay away from this out of fear, but at the same time, many others could not stay away. They overcame their fears. Many were transformed, and the Holy Spirit was purifying and changing this assembly. I long to be part of a church like that. And I know in some way none of us ever will. There's a uniqueness to this early church and to its experience and the work of the Spirit uniquely in this place and in this time. But I want to touch as much of this as I can get. I want to touch this power of God in our assemblies that repulses people who are not serious to follow the Lord, but also attracts those who say, there is an offer here, forgiveness of sin. And in the power of the Holy Spirit, I can become transformed. I can become a new person. So it's my prayer that Crystal Lake Baptist Church and the Eden Baptist Church and churches that are faithful communities would in fact repel some sinners. At the same time, because we are sinners, evidencing the grace of Christ would also bring others to the light of forgiveness and restoration, redemption, Christ crucified. We live in a day when people seek no accountability. They don't want accountability. They don't want uh, authority or other people looking into their lives. We live in a day when people want to be coddled and entertained and told how wonderful they are just as they are. We need to not cater to such desires by calibrating our church environment differently than our Savior intends. We're really messing with what he's seeking to do when we go at it that way. Because this is what people want, because this is the demand, we're going to then calibrate our church to accommodate that demand. What we're doing there is we're looking horizontally. We need to look vertically. The power doesn't come from us and how innovative and kind we are. The power comes from the Spirit of God who transforms sinners and gives saving grace to those who are lost. So let us not cater to that. Rather, may Crystal Lake Baptist Church become a community in which the purifying work of the risen Savior is carried out by members who love God's truth and so love one another that they're willing to help one another along. One of the happiest moments 
of the entire COVID season, and I'm, you know, trying to find happy moments in here. <laughs> they seem to be fleeting, but one of the happiest moments that I've had in the last few months was to sit with a couple, and the wife said to me, within this assembly, I have several women who continue to tell me your thinking is wrong. Don't go that direction. Go this direction. And she said, they are helping me think clearly and walk faithfully. And I thank God for those women. Well, that was a beautiful moment. That's what a church should be. Not just telling you everything you want to hear, but truly loving you to point you forward and become a person you're not yet by the grace of God. May we want to be that type of church. That's what Jesus wants for us. That's what the church is about. That's what it's supposed to be doing is purifying its people. And that's the message of Ananias and Sapphira. Not that God was just harsh and hated people. He was sending a message. This church is meant to purify you, to change you, to develop you through the truth of God. So in community as sinners, we're being remade by God into a holy community. We are not a holy community. Back to that man who doesn't want to come to our church. We're not a godly people, so godly that someone can't stand in among us. That's, we know that's not what's going on. But praise God if people see that he is changing us and growing us. And this, this reality involves the difficult process of church discipline. It looks differently than Acts 5, but it involves church discipline. It involves a community that graciously exposes sin and offers forgiveness and restoration for God's glory. May God help us become that kind of church. We will always be a church comprised of sinners. That's not going to change. But may we keep our eye fixed on the coming day when we will shine like a radiant bride before our Savior, purified from every defilement of the flesh, forever free from the very presence of sin. That's where we're moving. That's the light at the end of the tunnel. Focus there and move in that direction. Perhaps on that glad day, Two, by God's grace, we'll embrace one another and thank God for the faithful church that helped us get here. The church isn't saving you. Christ saves you. But the church, in his saving plan, helps you get to the light at the end of the tunnel. And on that day, may we rejoice that we were in a church that did hold us accountable, that was calibrating its life to the risen Christ, that was seeking the purity of, of its people and willing to hold one another to that and encourage one another to that end. That time when Jesus has purified us as his bride in heaven, may we rejoice in what he did through us on earth to get to that point. Let's pray. And Lord, I do pray for this church. I thank you for the love that is in my heart for them. But far more, I thank you for the perfect love that is in your heart for them. You long for them to be pure, to be holy, and also to hold forth the word of truth to a lost, dying, confused, and hopeless world. And I pray that this church would thrive in carrying forward that message, in proclaiming that truth, and that you would continue to work in this assembly to draw to the light of Christ 
those who need him. And Lord, where there are those who are repulsed, where there are those who are offended and do not like the thought of being in such an assembly, may we keep our eyes set on the light at the end and know where we're headed and why. Bless this church to that end, I pray, and draw to Christ each of us, any who know not Christ as Savior, those of us who do, may we love you and serve you and be focused through this text by the conviction of the Spirit of God to continue to pursue our purity in this assembly and one another's purity as we love each other to that end. Through Jesus, I pray.